Good evening everyone and welcome to our Sunday evening teaching service here at Crescent Church. I have been wildly self-indulgent this evening and have uh, persuaded Rachel to sing one of my favourite hymns. Uh, it's very appropriate for tonight's study. So after the introduction we will sing Abide With Me.
Let's commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all the blessings of life that you have given to us. You are the Father of lights, from whom comes every good and perfect gift. So many of us, Lord, can testify to the fact that you abide with us. You have never left us nor forsaken us. We have known your quiet, loving companionship every day of our pilgrim journey. And we thank you that your abiding love is stronger than the grave. When the moment comes for us to cross the Jordan, to pass from time into eternity, we will do so while held in our Saviour's mighty hand. We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus has brought life and immortality to light. Because of his resurrection from the dead, we can know that human beings can pass through death without loss of personal identity. We remember the Lord's words to the man dying beside him on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And so, our Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness and your uh, kindness to us in saving us. Our Father, we thank you for answering our prayers about a vaccine for this terrible virus that has caused so much mayhem around the world. We ask that you would imbue our political leaders with wisdom and clarity of thought and energy as they now go about the huge task of distributing vaccines to the general population. We pray for the United States of America that your calming hand of providence would be upon a society that's in danger of boiling over into conflict. We ask that the US would return to calm equilibrium and that your people would behave in a Christ-like manner no matter how terribly they are provoked. Our Father, we pray for our church family. We ask for those who are ill or who are grieving that you would strengthen and comfort them. We pray particularly for our older members who are being cared for in residential homes that you would protect them and still their fears. For this study, Father, we ask that you would help us to engage with your word and that it would build us up, that it would prepare us for a reality that lies ahead for all of us unless the Lord returns. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming to the close of our short series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight we're going to look at the start of the final chapter which addresses the issue of old age and death. In the year 1820, an Anglican vicar called uh, Henry Francis Light sat beside a dying man in County Wexford. As Light held the dying man's hand, he composed the words of the hymn we have just sung. And so let me remind you of the second verse. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. The hymn is a moving poem that reflects on perhaps the most sensitive pastoral issue that any Bible teacher can address, the moment when a Christian believer must face their own mortality. The teacher in Ecclesiastes ends his book with a poem about old age and death, and it must rate as one of the most brilliant and poignant poems ever written. In the course of this study, we will examine the teacher's poem, and then we're going to lay it beside two passages found in the New Testament. So let's begin by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the first eight verses. And I'd be really grateful if you kept the text open before us, before you, as, you, as we study it together. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, 
and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now that amazing poem is divided into three stanzas. In verses 1 and 2, we see the final storm of life approaching. In verses 3 through 5, we feel the fear caused by the storm. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see the destruction caused by the storm. So the storm approaches, the storm brings fear, and the storm destroys. Now that's an interesting way to think about death, isn't it? A gathering storm that will not pass us by. You see, when we're young, when the skies darken, we know that one day the skies will part again. We go through tough times, but then the clouds disappear and the sun comes out to play once again. But this final storm is different. This time, says verse 2, the sun and the moon and the light and the stars are darkened and clouds keep returning after the rain. This is like the storm we read about in Genesis chapter 6, when God destroyed the world by flood. The language used here is the language of uncreation, of creation going in reverse, if you like. In verses 3 through 5, the word pictures change. And the teacher describes a great house, maybe a palace, uh, that has security staff and noble courtiers and, and cooks and aristocratic ladies. And we get to see how they react as the storm approaches. The security staff tremble. The powerful nobles bend over, bowed down by anxiety. A household that once buzzed with life and noise now stands silent. Nobody can even be bothered to prepare food anymore. Privileged women who used to stare out at the world and make sense of it can no longer engage with the world outside. So security has gone, normality has gone, and all that is left is anxiety and isolation. Now anyone reading this poem might scratch their heads at this point and ask, what does that mean? What does this great house represent? Well, as the poem progresses, we see the genius of the poet. The house represents the habitation of the human soul. The house is our body. The keepers of the house that tremble represent the weakened arms of an old man. The strong nobles who bow represent their legs. Verse 3 tells us that the grinders cease because they are few. That is obviously talking about the loss of teeth in older people. The dimmed windows refer to failing eyesight and the shut doors represent loss of hearing. Verse 5 talks about the white blossom of an almond tree and that is of course a picture of an old person's white hair. And the stanza ends with this pathetic picture of an almost dead grasshopper dragging itself along the ground. A, a creature that used to bounce and flit around with bewildering speed now moves like a snail. The emotion that pervades verses 3 through 5 is anxiety, fear, fear of the approaching storm. The old person is described as easily startled 
afraid of climbing a ladder or afraid of going outside. In other words, the elderly man or woman becomes acutely conscious of their fragility. So let's just take a step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what is the point of this twin metaphor? Why sometimes describe a human being as the people who live in a big house and then at other times describe a human being as the house itself? Well, the teacher's point is that we aren't just a bit of mindless machinery that has broken down. The New Testament tells us that the body is inhabited by our soul. So as our bodies start to break down, the real person becomes anxious, wondering what will happen when the storm finally causes the house it lives in to collapse. So sometimes we say, my body is breaking down. But other times we think, I am breaking down. In the final stanza of the poem, verses 6 through 8, we see the complete destruction caused by the storm of death. The teacher uses two word pictures here to describe what death is. First, he asks us to visualise a, a golden bowl suspended by a silver chain. And in the ancient world, that bowl would have been filled with oil to create a lamp that projected light into the darkness. But the silver chain breaks and the golden bowl falls and is crushed on the ground. So the light goes out. The second word picture is that of a pitcher that was lowered into a well using a, a flywheel arrangement. But the wheel breaks and the pitcher shatters. So no life-giving water is available. So when you put those two word pictures together, the teacher is telling us what he thinks happens at death. Light and life disappear, leaving only material stuff. So in the ultimate moment of destruction, we see dust return to dust. The life that once animated the mortal remains of the dead returns to its creator. Now that is a bleak view of death. The teacher doesn't give a hint of any hope of personal immortality. Now godly men in the Old Testament, men like Abraham and uh, Job and David and Daniel, they all could discern the hope of resurrection and the promise of a glorious life after death. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes sees nothing up ahead but the grave. We sometimes sing, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. Well, the teacher only saw Sheol. Now, in the course of his investigation, he has made some important progress. The poem we're studying now is the counterpart to the poem at the start of chapter 1. And if you remember, that poem, we really could have entitled it The Circle of Life. It could have been written by a Buddhist, to be honest. But by the end of the book, the teacher believes in a creator who made us intentionally. And he also believes in God as the final judge who holds us to account uh, for how we have lived. So he has moved away from the worldview that we find in the religions of the East. He's moved from seeing reality as a circle of life and now realises that life is a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that is progress. But it's still far from the hope and joy we find in the New Testament. Now, before we step into the New Testament, there is wisdom for us to glean from this ancient poem. The teacher has given us some really important insights into what lies up ahead. As we get old, we become more fragile. Our world gets smaller. We begin to feel isolated. And a profound sort of anxiety can gnaw away in our minds as we become ever more conscious that the storm of death will one day crush light and life from our bodies. So the obvious question arises, given the inevitable trajectory of life, 
how should we prepare for old age? And the teacher has a profound insight for us. The answer, he says, is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. You need to prepare for the storm before it hits you. He says that in the opening verse of chapter 12. About 150 years ago, a pastor called James Miller wrote these words about old age. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. It is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. We are each in our earlier years building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. And we may, we may make it a prison or a palace. We may cover the walls with lovely pictures. We may lay up and store great supply of provisions that will get us through the long winter nights. Or we may make our house very gloomy, he says. We may hang the chamber walls with horrid pictures, covering them with ghastly spectres that look down upon us and haunt us. We may make beds of thorns to rest upon. We may have no fuel ready for winter fires. All old age is not beautiful. All old people are not happy. Some are wretched with hollow, sepulchral lives. So the point is this. How prepared are you for the deprivations of old age? What state is your mental and spiritual furniture in? When the teacher urges us to remember the Creator in our youth, I think he is giving that advice in a wistful, rueful tone because he wasted many years of his life in intellectual folly and hedonism. So he had nothing to warm his heart when old age came. Now is the time when you are young to build a warm, intimate fellowship with the triune God. Do it now so that when you're old and frail and the doorbell never rings, you can still enjoy fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now is the time when you're young to build a coherent biblical worldview into your mind so that you can know real security when the storm of death approaches. Now is the time when you are young to forge deep and abiding Christian friendships that will last into your final years. Now is the time when you are young to develop a deep knowledge of and a love for the scriptures. If you spend your youth and middle years slumped in front of Netflix or worse, then in old age your life will feel like a prison. Your mind will be four blank walls. So prepare for old age by building the right mental furniture into the home your soul will inhabit in old age. I said that in our, open, in our opening study that it's very helpful to contrast Ecclesiastes with the Sermon on the Mount. In each message, we find a king who is a teacher uh, who sets out their vision of reality. So let's now read this, how the Sermon on the Mount ends and then we'll supplement that with a reading from 2 Corinthians. So Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read verses 24 through 27. And the Lord Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And now over to Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 16, and we'll read right through uh, to 5, uh, verse 5. 